Let's turn to the Lord in prayer before we open his word. Dear Father in heaven, we are thankful to be here again, to see each other, to encourage ourselves in this word, dear Father, and to be seen of thee and to be come before thee and in thy presence in a special way. Though thou art an infinite almighty God who fills this whole earth with thy glory and thy power, yet this means of worship, this, this gathering together, simple as it is, is laid out in thy word. And dear Father, we want to claim that promise now as we open thy word. Dear Father, be with our loved ones, those that are going through difficult times, as we've already mentioned the announcements, those that need thy special touch of healing, those that need that strengthening in the inner man, dear Father, as their body gives them a hard time. Help them, dear Father. We know that thou wilt not forsake anyone who clings to thee, dear Father, and we pray that thou wouldst be their help in their state. Dear Father, as we open thy word now, reveal to us what it needs to do what the Spirit, what work needs to happen in, within ourselves. We pray this in weakness, dear Father, calling out, crying out for help. Amen. I'd like to continue in Second uh, Corinthians chapter 11. Second Corinthians chapter 11. Verse 1. Would to God ye could bear with me a little in my folly, and indeed bear with me. For I am jealous over you with godly jealousy. For I have espoused you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. But I fear, lest by any means, as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your minds should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. For if he that cometh preacheth another Jesus, whom we have not preached, or if he receive another spirit, which ye have not received, or another gospel, which ye have not accepted, ye might well bear with him. For I suppose I was not a whit behind the very chiefest apostles. But though I be rude in speech, yet not in knowledge. But we have been throughly made manifest among you in all things. Have I committed an offense in abasing myself that ye might be exalted because I have preached to you the gospel of God freely? I robbed other churches, taking wages of them to do you service. And when I was present with you and wanted, I was chargeable to no man. For that which was lacking to me, the brethren which came from Macedonia supplied. And in all things, I have kept myself from being burdensome unto you, and so will I keep myself. As the truth of Christ is in me, no man shall stop me of this boasting in the regions of Achaia. Wherefore, because I love you not, God knoweth. But what I do, that I will do, that I may cut off occasion from them which desire occasion, that wherein they glory, they may be found even as we. For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ. And no marvel, 
for Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. Therefore it is of no great thing if his ministers also be transformed as the ministers of righteousness, whose end shall be according to their works. I say again, let no man think me a fool. If otherwise, yet as a fool receive me, that I may boast myself a little. That which I speak, I speak it not after the Lord, but as it were foolishly in this confidence of boasting. Seeing that many glory after the flesh, I will glory also. For ye suffer fools gladly, seeing ye yourselves are wise. For ye suffer if a man bring you into bondage, if a man devour you, if a man take of you, if a man exalt himself, if a man smite you on the face. I speak as concerning reproach, as though we had been weak. Albeit, whereinsoever any is bold, I speak foolishly, I am bold also. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they the seed of Abraham? So am I. Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am more. In labors, more abundant. In stripes, above measure. In prisons, more frequent. In deaths, oft. Of the Jews, five times received I forty stripes, save one. Thrice was I beaten with rods. Once was I stoned. Thrice I suffered shipwreck. A night and a day have I been in the deep. In journeyings often, in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils by mine own countrymen, in perils by the heathen, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and painfulness, in watchings often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness. Beside those things that are without, that which cometh upon me daily, cometh upon me daily, the care of all the churches. Who is weak, and I am not weak? Who is offended, and I burn not? If I must needs glory, I will glory of the things which concern mine infirmities. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which is blessed forevermore, knoweth that I lie not. In Damascus, the governor under Aretas the king kept the city of the Damascenes with a garrison desirous to apprehend me, and through a window in a basket was I let down by the wall and escaped his hands. I read uh, to the end of chapter 11 of God's word, 2 Corinthians, may he bless it. Let's kneel for prayer. Heavenly Father, thou that dwellest in the Holy of Holies, whose name is unpronounceable, whose presence is awful and terrifying, who art holiness itself, but yet art also love. Heavenly Father, we thank thee from the bottom of our hearts for the revelation of Jesus Christ, that he came not as some fiery being from another realm, but a man like us to show us the Father. Heavenly Father, we thank thee for thy great love 
for thy, for thy mercy, for the care that thou dost have toward thy fallen creation in sending thy Son as a special emissary to us, that we would know how thou dost think, and we can now, even with boldness, approach such a terrible and wonderful God, knowing that he is in essence the same as that loving teacher from Galilee who took children into his arms. Where would we go? What would we do if we did not know this? Heavenly Father, we thank thee for thy goodness toward us in so many ways, in so many ways that we even forget to acknowledge. And we ask now for thy presence to be with us as we would look into thy word together. Heavenly Father, we thank thee also for the ministry and for the life of the Apostle Paul. A man like us, but so wholly devoted to thee. Heavenly Father, help us to take courage from his example, <clears throat> to learn to, to lift up the feeble hands and the, the knees that have grown, grown weak and tremble to realize that there was one who walked this way before us, who in spite of all these great difficulties and dangers and pain, yet served thee faithfully and was received into glory. Help us to also seek the same for us, dear Lord, that we may with thy help, by the same spirit that upheld the Apostle Paul, minister unto thee until we are called to meet thee one day. Heavenly Father, be with each one who's gathered here this morning to hear thy word. May thy word go forth in power and in simplicity. Fill our brother as he would speak the word unto us, that we would be not only encouraged but admonished, that we would be reminded that when we think things are too great for us, Heavenly Father, help us to remember the saints of the past like the Apostle Paul and to remember thy Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who in spite of the difficulty, in spite of the, the pain, persevered knowing that there was a hope set before him and that he would be bringing many sons and daughters unto glory. Be with us now. We are mindful of our brother Doug and sister Millie as they're away from us uh, in Australia. Watch over them, Heavenly Father. Bring them home safely according to thy will. Be with us now also as we are uh, looking forward to thy word and be with those who could not gather with us today, whether sick or shut in, those that have are constrained perhaps by old age. Dear Lord, be with each one and bless them as we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you remember from last time, from chapter 10, when you meditated on that, this is part of a a change in tone that Paul takes in the last third, the last um, four chapters of this letter. And you can sense it. I'm, I've tried doing the reading, make it maybe a little bit more um, uh, emotional maybe than we typically do. I, I hope I haven't offended anyone by that. But to me, when I read this passage, when I read this chapter, Paul's tone, he's he's... He's doing what we read in chapter 10. He's fighting. He's fighting for this church. He's fighting with spiritual weapons. He's, and I marvel. I mean, look at how he opens the chapter. Would to God ye could bear with me a little in my folly, in my foolishness. 
He says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take a little detour here, a foolish detour. Why does he say that? I believe he's inspired by the Holy Spirit. I think we all do. This is part of God's word. I'm not questioning in any way God's, uh, the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But think about it. Just the last chapter, he had said, he had said, it is not wise, it's foolish to compare yourselves among yourselves, right? Chapter, uh, verse 12 of chapter 10. And now here, he's going to embark on an extended comparison with these false apostles. He says, this is a foolish endeavor, but I feel I need to do it. To compare myself to these ones that you're putting up with, that you are bearing, that you're entertaining, these false apostles, because this is a dangerous situation that you find yourselves in, church in Corinth. This is a... Look at the metaphor that he uses here. You know, we've been to a number of weddings the past several months. It's been wonderful occasions, glorious uh, occasions as we've seen young couples get married. But you know, each one of those weddings was based on an engagement first. Promises made, a deepening relationship, until it culminated in the wedding day, and then they were, they were married and now share their life together. I'm sure, I don't want to think about this too much, but I'm sure for each one of those weddings, if there had been a, a distance and a coldness in that engagement relationship, a drifting, there never would have been a wedding. This is the, the, the situation the church in Corinth finds themselves in. They're, they're an espoused, a, a, a promised one to Christ. I have espoused you to one husband. That's what espoused means. It means engaged. Not fully married yet, but you're promised. And in some sense, we are promised to Christ. The wedding hasn't happened yet in some sense. That great wedding feast that will happen one day when we're in his presence hasn't happened yet. We're promised to him. If we don't stay true and faithful to him, if we don't grow closer to him, if that relationship doesn't deepen in, in, in anticipation of the wedding, the wedding will never happen. That's how serious. That's why Paul says, I'm jealous over you with a godly jealousy. That must, it makes a sense of his, his emotion now. We think that word jealous, jealousy is a, it's a bad word. And on a human standpoint, yes, it is. When I'm jealous of someone else, I, I want what they have. Notice the words, jealous of them. But when we have a godly jealousy, we are jealous for something. The only one who can express this jealousy in righteousness and truth and perfect, perfectness is God. God says numerous times in the Ten Commandments and elsewhere in, in the Old Testament, I am a jealous God. And he can say that because he's, there's no impurity in him. What he desires is always right. And not only that, what he desires is the best for us. He made us. When he says, I'm jealous of you, I want your affections, I don't want to share them with anyone else. He's saying that not only because he is right, but because that is what's best for us. And Paul is just entering into this. That's the godly jealousy. He's jealous on behalf of God. Not because Paul feels that he's something or that his rights aren't being... Um, respected as an apostle in the Corinthian church? No. He is jealous on the behalf of God. He is jealous for the Lord. How much are you and I jealous for each other? Does it even matter what 
each one of us does as it affects the others. I take this example from Paul. He, there is no um, take it or leave it. You see that in this letter. He is fighting with everything that he has. He's saying, I'm not going to just let this go passively. I'm not going to let you slip away. I'm not going to just let you get entranced by these fancy speakers that have a triumphant sort of Christianity that that looks all good and flashy and, and looks great, but has at its core something that is not Jesus, that is not the gospel you received and not the spirit that you received. That's the jealousy he has. That's maybe what we need more of among ourselves. That desire, that fervency. I think that's part of the, the temptation of the last age, the cooling off, the love of many waxing cold. It's not just this, a cessation or this feeling of uh, uh, warm emotions that we have. You know, while they don't have that as much and I don't feel that as much as I used to, it's... It, Together with that goes with this jealousy, this godly jealousy, that we, we care what happens to each other, that we're not just going to let it go. Not because of us, because we have some position or we think we're some great church, apostolic Christian church, we take pride in our name. No, it is the Lord. It's his behalf that we are jealous on his behalf. So this is the situation, the dangerous situation that that. Paul is warning them, you're an engaged one. You are an espoused bride to Christ. There is a danger here of you being, I fear, lest by any means, as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your mind should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. This is the danger. There is deception. There is real deception. Deception is always the most effective when it's mixed. I mean, that's the very nature of the deception, when it's mixed with truth, when there's an element of truth in there. Later on in these verses here, 13, 14, 15, Paul expounds on this a little bit where he says about these false apostles being transformed into um, angels of light, ministers of righteousness. So Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. This is the danger of the deception is that something that maybe looks right, something that maybe feels right, it makes me feel a certain way. Yeah, this is the right thing. It can deceive me and actually corrupt my mind. What are the tools? What are the things to combat this? The first one is simplicity that is in Christ. The simple truth that you and I have received. That's what Paul's calling them back to. Look at verse 4. For if he that cometh preacheth another Jesus, whom we have not preached, or if he receive another spirit, which ye have not received, or another gospel, which ye have not accepted, go back to what you received, to what first you embraced, what first made a change in your life. That's a way to combat deception and, and subtle shadings of truth that will just tack you off ever so slowly until you're miles away from where you started. Look back what you embraced first. Now, don't take this and say, well, there's no growth in Christian life. No, no, that's not it at all. Look at Paul. Look at his example. That's not the case. There is growth. There is a a growing awareness, a knowledge of who he is and what he has done for us and what he will do and is doing. 
but at its core, we need to be rooted and, and stayed on what we embraced first, Jesus, the spirit we received, and the gospel that we heard. Very simple things. And, and, and this is a marvelous test for anything. Think about it. Anything that I encounter, any, anytime I'm confused about, well, is this the right thing or the wrong thing? Is this trend a good thing or a bad thing? The simple test, Jesus, the spirit, the gospel, are they upheld? Are they compromised in any, any way? It's simple. This is the beauty of the gospel. You know, it doesn't take degrees or complicated uh, uh, philosophies. It's very simple. And that's why pe simple people often, if you look at the history of the church, they're the ones that stayed the truest to Jesus Christ and his calling. It was when people became lifted up, became super educated. The temptation of the Corinthian church, right? that they start to depart. The gospel is simple. The other tool that we have is something, it's not really explicitly stated here, but when I think about this, I think, uh, this is very true. The tool we have to combat deception is us. Notice how he talks about the church. I have espoused you to one husband that I may present you as a chaste virgin, a single we are all being presented to Jesus as the bride. He doesn't say, I, I'm, there's, I'm going to present you all as a bunch of brides to Jesus, all individually. No, you're a one bride. So this deception, it can happen <clears throat> on an individual basis in your minds. But the way to combat the deception is all of us together as a body, ministering to each other warning each other, encouraging each other, helping lift each other up so that we are presented as one singular body, one singular bride to Christ. That is a means. So this is Paul's concern. This is the motivation now why he is going to embark on some quote-unquote foolishness, some folly to compare. And he has a, he has a spiritual intention here. He, has, he is combating... Uh, the best way that he knows how, through the, the Holy Spirit, he's combating what's going on in Corinth. And he compares himself to these false apostles. In, I think, maybe three ways at least. The first way, verse 6, but though I be rude in speech, we read about it last chapter, right? They said Paul is not a polished speaker. His letters, oh, they, they seem to be weighty and powerful, but his speech, it's contemptible. Those that are familiar with the history and the time period in Greek, ancient Greece, and I mean, even now we know that the level of learning is sophistication and knowledge in ancient Greece. We still today, the, 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 the foundations of modern philosophy and thinking, it all goes back to that, to Aristotle and Plato and Socrates and these very wise men that, that uncovered genuine truths that God had made in his world. A very wise society. In some ways, we have nothing on them. And this society prized, you know, in the days before video and whatever, prized public speaking, the ability to express your thoughts clearly in a way that, that not only communicated truth but brought the listener along and, and made them uh, kind of see the bigger picture and experience the bigger picture. They really prized this. And there were schools of, of rhetoric. Forget all the names. 
Demosthenes, I think, is maybe one of them. And Paul didn't fit that at all. He said, I'm not going to go along with that. I don't think it because he was stupid. I don't think it was because he didn't have the intellectual firepower. We know that uh, as we read this word. This was a man that knew the poets of the day. He knew the writings of the day. Not only that, he knew all of the law and the prophets in a, in a far deeper way than, than you and I could probably imagine. No, he said, deliberately, I'm not going along with that. I'm not going to use these, these means and these tools that you prize so highly. Yeah, I'm going to be rude in speech. He says, I'm going to make a contrast between me and these false apostles. But though I be rude in speech, yet not in knowledge, but we have been throughly made manifest unto you, among you, in all things. This is a lesson for us, brothers and sisters. Let's not prize the high, the, the polished speaking or the, the eloquence. And I don't think we've been historically accused of that. On the other hand, knowledge of God's word and a godly life that conforms to that word are the standards. They're what need to be striven for. They, they're, need, they're what need to be held as the measuring stick of leadership, of, of any form of, of, of our living. Not the presentation, not the, the few words of a, of a moment, but the long term. He says, I've been throughly, completely made manifest among you in all things. You know what I'm about. I spent years in Corinth. You know who I am. There's nothing hidden. These other guys that have come along, flash in the pan. Big words. You don't know much about them. So that was the one comparison he makes on the level of speech. The next one he makes. Have I committed an offense in abasing myself that ye might be exalted because I have preached to you the gospel of God freely? Key word here, freely. He makes a comparison on the level of money. If you go back to Acts, you can see this is a pattern that Paul started specifically in Corinth and other churches, and he says here too, he even uses hyperbolic language. I robbed other churches. I don't think he literally robbed them. I think he was upright and honest in all things. I robbed other churches taking wages of them to do you service. He took funds from other churches. He received them, I should say. But he didn't in Corinth. He specifically didn't. He says, I'm not going to do it. When he first got there, when he met Aquila and Priscilla, Aquila was a fellow tent maker like he was. They labored. He labored as a tent maker. He said specifically, I'm not going to take a view because I want to pull the rug out from under these false prophets, these false teachers, because they're all about money. You want to make a comparison? Your smooth talkers who receive their usual and customary fees or me, a plain speaking tent maker? Which one are you going to choose? You know what, brothers and sisters, we shouldn't be ashamed of, of making that comparison either. We should not be ashamed of the gospel of Christ, of living it clearly and plainly and speaking it plainly. The one who has a flashy demonstration is often missing the power. And that's really what our focus should be on the power, on the conforming of a life. And he goes on in verses 9 and 10. He says, I, I'm, no one's going to stop me from not taking money from you. Basically, as the truth of Christ is in me, no man shall stop me of this boasting in the regions of Achaia. That's that region of Corinth that, he's, that he was 
doing this practice. Wherefore, because I love you not, God knoweth. He, he really does love them. That's why he's doing this. But what I do, that will I do, that I may cut off occasion, pull out the rug from them which desire occasion, that wherein they glory, they may be found even as we. Paul says, you know what? Life actually is going to be a little bit more difficult as a result. The, the Corinthian church was wealthy. They had, I'm sure, they were in a wealthy city. They had lots of money, certainly more wealthy than the Macedonian churches. And Paul says, I'm not going to take any money from you, wealthy church, because of this. It wasn't about him. It wasn't about his comfort. What he, um, Because he saw the spiritual value of this and the, the enemy, the danger of those that were coming in and flashy talk. So on the level of money, he compares himself. The last thing that he compares himself on, and that takes the majority of the rest of the chapter, and this is where we get the most complete picture in Scripture of what Paul's life was really about. And this is, this is maybe the halfway point in his ministry when he makes this account. This last point of comparison is in the sufferings for Christ, in the ministry of Christ. When I compare myself, oh, what, what have I, what have we gone through on behalf of Christ. But the Lord knows the future. He knows what's going to happen. He knows where he's going to lead us, what's ahead. As we cling to the simplicity of the gospel, as we don't depart from Jesus and from his spirit, he may lead us on a path like this. Paul uses this path this boasting, he says, this foolishness to show just how bankrupt these false teachers are. That the gospel they're preaching is not the gospel of Jesus. It doesn't look anything like Jesus. For ye suffer fools gladly, seeing yourselves are wise. Just pretend, treat me like a fool, okay, now, and, and I'm going to make a comparison, a foolish comparison. Before he does that, notice here, and this gives us a little insight. Verse 20. He points up the suffering of the, of the Corinthians under these false teachers. For ye suffer if a man bring you into bondage, if a man devour you, if a man take of you, if a man exalt himself, if a man smite you on the face. Maybe he's referring to a specific incident or something like that. Where these false prophets, these false teachers were coming in and they were lording it over. And, and the Corinthians were putting up with it because it was, looked good, it looked flashy. Verse 21, I speak as concerning reproach as though we had been weak. Paul says, in effect, almost, you know, I'm, I'm, I was too weak to do that to you, to, to put you in bondage, to devour you. That's not, the, that's not the leading of Christ. It's not a lordship, a high and mighty. It's a God of heaven and earth humbling himself to serve. So he makes this comparison, and he, he makes a catalog of what he's experienced as a minister of Christ. You know, they, they must have, verse 22, they must have held up this whole, are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they the seed of Abraham? So am I. They must have held that up and, and made some kind of, well, we are proper Israelites. We are the closest to Jesus. We know the most. You know, it's kind of interesting to do a little thought comparison here. 
that the same false prophets, the same false teachers in Galatia chose a different tactic. In Galatia, in the churches of Galatia, their tactic was legalism. It was, you have to go back to the law. You Gentiles, you must keep the law in order to be Christians. And Paul's, uh, you can read Galatians and, and see how he responds to that. Here, I don't think that was the tactic used by the evil one. That's not how the serpent beguiled the church here in, in Corinth. I think it was the opposite tack, that those false teachers didn't deal with sin. They didn't deal with, with a permissive lifestyle that was going on here in Corinth. If you read the chapter, end of chapter 12 and 13. So it shows you that deception can go both ways. You can be deceived one way to pull you off to, to think I'm right and, and I have a sense of security in what I'm doing and depart from Christ, or you can go the other way and say, nothing that I do really matters. The grace of Christ will cover everything and I'm okay. Deception both ways. Shading of the truth both ways. Taking the truth, twisting it both ways. So Paul takes, talks about his sufferings. Of the Jews, five times received I forty stripes, saved one. You know, we have an account in, in, the, in Acts of Paul's experiences. But when you compare this to the account in Acts, just a few things are captured there. There's a whole lot more here. And as I said before, this is the halfway point of his ministry. <laughs> Acts is just a, it's, it's an incomplete account in the sense of he, Luke didn't have the space to record everything. I don't even know if he records all of this, these beatings. The five times received I 40 stripes save one. What that means is, is the Jews were so careful of the law. Moses in his law commanded that you shouldn't beat anyone more than 40, to, 40 stripes as punishment. And the Jews said, we don't want to transgress that law, so we'll do 39, just in case we miscount it. That's how, uh, how their view of things were. Thrice was I beaten with rods, and here it's talking about the, the fasces, I think. That's, if you've ever seen that symbol of, of Roman authority, it was that bundle of sticks, rods, that was used to beat. And I have no idea how painful that would be. It would probably be big and flexible. I think we have a record of one beating in Acts. He says, thrice was I beaten with rods. Once was I stoned. I think that's in Acts, in, in Lystra. Thrice I suffered shipwreck. Remember, at this point, he hasn't even experienced the shipwreck that's recorded in Acts when his final journey to Rome. Thrice, a night and a day I have been in the deep. What that means was he was probably shipwrecked and floating in the water for a night and a day, for 24 hours. In journeyings often, we're talking about the ancient world here, where everywhere you go, it must be by foot. If you're rich, maybe you have horses or a chariot. Paul wasn't rich. Everywhere by foot, across rivers that were in flood, in perils of waters, in country that was barren and infested by bandits, perils of robbers, in perils by mine own countrymen. Paul was probably the most traveled person of the ancient world. Think about that. He probably logged the most miles on those tired feet of anyone of that day. And he says this not for his glory. That's the... You get a sense in the beginning of this chapter, he didn't want to do this. He he didn't feel comfortable giving you this list, but he felt he had to do it. I'm driven to this folly. He didn't want it to be about himself. He gloried in the Lord. 
but he thought and he through the through the inspiration of the spirit he realized the best way to undercut these false teachers who talk a great game but their lives are not according to God is to show actually what a real servant of the Lord what he can be accomplished through God's power and his grace may the Lord if he uh, brings us to that point where we have to share honest, honestly and openly our experience may he give us that humility and that grace and the clarity to do that uh, to God's honor and glory and not be tempted to to lift up ourselves in perils among false brethren read about some of those in first or second Timothy in weariness and painfulness in watchings often you gotta stay up all night I know how I am when I miss a few hours of sleep and get maybe two-thirds rather than the full night's sleep how I feel the next day I don't feel very spiritual often This is the, the life that Paul was living, but it was a triumphant life. This is the thing. This is what he holds up. He says, this is the life in Christ. When we go through difficulty and pain and suffering, and I get a sense that church in Corinth didn't, they were squeamish about this. They didn't want this type of Christianity. When we go through it, we, oh, why is life so difficult? Why is, why is my life not turning out the way I wanted it to? Paul says, in this situation where I'm up all night and, 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 and hungry and cold, I'm glorifying the Lord because I see him working. This is for him. It's on his behalf. The last thing he ends here on this list, beside those things that are without, that which cometh upon me daily. In the Greek, it's like a really heavy laying, the care of all the churches. You know, not only had he had these experiences of, of beatings and, and stoning and... and things that would traumatize anyone. And you could say, I have a lot of PTSD and a lot of baggage that I'm carrying from these horrible things that, went, that, that happened to me, that people did to me. But every day when I get up, I think about my brothers and sisters that may be straying from the simplicity of Christ, thinking, what can I do? What can I say? How can I reach them? I can't just pick up the phone in those days, everywhere by foot or hand-delivered letter. That which cometh upon me daily, the care of all the churches. Who is weak and I am not weak? Everyone that struggles, I feel with them. Who is offended and I burn not? This is such a, the way he ends this. If I must needs glory, I will glory of the things which concern mine infirmities. And the last thing he accounts here is probably the first experience he had in Damascus after his conversion after he was baptized by Ananias, spoke in the synagogues of Christ and people, this is the one who came to persecute the Christians and now he's speaking about Christ. And then they turned against him and he had to leave the city, let down through a window on the outside wall in a basket. What a humiliating thing. You think if someone wanted to, to preach about the, the glories of something of Christ, why would they relate this incident? And yet Paul puts this, records this in that list. And I think it's, he's in effect saying, God has been my provision all along in all of these circumstances, all of this whole list, right from the first one when I was crouched in that basket wondering what's going to happen. Is someone going to lift the lid off and discover me and I'll be captured and, and crucified? Or 
whatever. All the way along, God was his provision. God cared for him, God provided for him, and led him all the way through. And this is the service of Christ. This is what he glories in. This is what you and I ought to glory in. This, is, this will keep us secure from the wiles of the devil, the wiles of the evil one. My brother and my sister, Satan can appear in many different forms. We've heard, or we, read, we read in scripture, and he can be a roaring lion. I take that. He can, be, he can scare us. That's one means. He can, he can frighten us into whatever to depart from God. Scripture also talks about, and here too, he's a serpent. A subtle serpent, sneaking and slithering along. Speaking to us in those moments of weakness and doubt. Why not? Just partake. Do that. But the passage here talks about him also as an angel of light. That he can appear to be something right and true. Don't be frightened by that. Don't be scared by that. The, the, the answer to that is the simplicity in Christ. Is what you've learned, what you've experienced, what you've been taught by those that went before you, those that preached to you of this word. And that is what enables you to withstand and not be deceived. My friend outside of Christ, I don't think you have any such assurance. You are outside of Christ. You have not embraced Jesus. You've not received the gospel. You know that you have not because you have not been obedient to it completely and fully. You're very open to deception, my friend outside of Christ. You're hearing this word this morning, but it could be taken from you. If you don't have Jesus, if you don't have his spirit, if you haven't submitted yourself to his gospel, that angel of light can appear and wing you somewhere away whose ends, as he concludes here, whose ends shall be according to their works. May God encourage us this morning through the example of Apostle Paul, through the example of the church in Corinth, who it appears responded to this strong, this fighting on, on Paul's, uh, that, that Paul did, responded well to it, took that message to heart, rejected those false teachers. May we do the same, those false teachers, those ones that want to deceive us in our lives, those messages from the evil one. Um, may he help us and encourage us. We've heard some very sobering things from the Apostle Paul this morning as he compared himself with those false teachers that were trying to pull away people after themselves for their own benefit, for their own gain. I'm thankful that our ministering brothers don't receive any compensation physically for their labor here. In our churches, You won't find a single personality, I think, that dominates. Mega churches are usually built around a powerful pastor, someone with eloquent words. The bigger the congregation, the bigger the collections, the bigger the collections, the bigger the salary. You can probably think of prominent 
Christian speakers that are featured on television shows and billboards, books. That was never Christ's intent. You know, the purpose of a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ is one thing. To make Christ known. To make him the focus. If we think about the people and their gifts, we get easily distracted. But the, the ones, I think, that stay most in our memory, the people that, the, the instructors in Christ that we've had that stayed the most in our memory, they don't do so because they were such polished speakers, but because of their, of their love for us in declaring the gospel to us. It's been said before that people don't care what you know until they know that you care. And the ones that have cared for us deeply are the ones that have instructed us, especially those that have poured their lives into us, not for any kind of compensation, but because they wanted Christ to be formed in us. And that was the heart of the Apostle Paul. I hope that it's also the heart of each one who ministers from this pulpit that we would get out of the way and that Christ would be the focus of our worship here this morning. I don't think any of our ministers would claim eloquence. We simply speak what we believe, the things that we've experienced, and we realize that if we do not do so, as Paul said, woe unto me if I preach not the gospel. My brothers and sisters, may you have that same burden also throughout this week that you would speak the gospel to other people, that you would share what you believe, that you would labor to see Christ formed in those that you meet. That's what we've been called to do. We don't even know the names of the ones who spoke in, in Corinth that were the, the popular orators of the day. They've disappeared into, into, the, into the mists of history. But that misshapen tent maker from Antioch, whose back probably looked like a bumpy road from all the times he had been beaten. Yet we still today thank God for that man who got out of the way so that Christ could be seen. May we each have that desire in this upcoming week to show Christ, to make him known so that others may be saved. May the Lord add whatever was lacking to what was said and may he dismiss us now with his blessing. Amen.